Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. I'm your host, Roy Samuel. I'm a serial entrepreneur, having founded multiple businesses, including one that I scaled and sold to a gaming company in 2018. I've been an investor for the last four years. I'm super passionate about neurodiversity as a sufferer of ADHD and severe dyslexia myself. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people, from actors to academics, investors to entrepreneurs, politicians, musicians, scientists, professional athletes, and everyone in between. And we talk to these people about risk. Risks they've taken in their lives, risks they've taken in their careers, when they pay off and when they don't. And on today's show, I'm blessed to be joined by the one and only Nick Telson. Nick is a serial entrepreneur, having founded, scaled, and exited Design My Night. He's currently the co-founder of Trumpet and a serial angel investor himself, having invested in over 50 early stage companies. Nick, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, delighted to be here. Great, so fascinating. You started your career climbing the corporate ladder. Yes. And then you quit, gave it all in to go all in on building Design My Night. Yeah. Is that the beginning of your journey with risk or is there, there more to the story than people know? I think I've, I've always had risk around me. So my dad um, founded his own business. So he would just call himself a businessman, uh, not a entrepreneur. Um, so ever since I can remember, dad has had his own businesses. So I would see him like leave at like 6 a.m., come back at like 8 p.m. In the, in the summer holidays, I would go into the office and like be annoying and run around the office and stuff. Um, so I think I've always had that around me and I've never seen my parents have like traditional jobs. Mm -hmm. So all, that was almost normal for me. So I think there was that element inbred into me um, and, and dad loves it, loved it. So um, you, I got the balance of like how hard it is yeah. uh, and how hard he worked to give us what we've had. Um, so yeah, I think that was definitely the start for me. Um, but then I think it being in corporate, like I really enjoyed it. I would never speak ill of corporate. I worked at L'Oreal, which is like a fun corporate. So it's very buzzy, um, like great energy in the office. You're working with great brands that people know. But yeah, you can get quite stale, I think, quite quickly. And I think that's why I saw as I was climbing the ladder at L'Oreal, I was just like, well, where do I go next? It's like a general manager or something. And actually all they do is just like doing reports and reporting back to Paris because we're in the London office. So that for me was like, I could just stay here for 30 years and have a great career, I'm sure, and enjoy it. But it, it wouldn't be like the vibe, the energy that I really wanted. Which is interesting because so many entrepreneurs I speak to, if you're of that psychological type where you want that risk, you want that, that drive, you want that, almost like the adrenaline yeah. of building a business, actually staying in the corporate career, that's the risk in many ways, right? You, you miss out on that other side of, of the things that you're really passionate about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, and look, it's, it's definitely horses for courses, yeah. but I, I, I would always promote working in like a, a corporate first. So I think, you know, I meet tons of founders now, um, like really young ones, which, you know, I'm a big advocate of, mm -hmm. but their first job is almost, I'm going to be a founder. Mm -hmm. um, and like, that's a big leap to take, like huge admiration. But I also felt that I really like learnt my ropes of business in a corporate, like managing. So I managed a team there mm -hmm. and I learnt from great managers at L'Oreal as well a few that are really good friends of mine still to this day. Um, I learned how to manage a PL. Um, I learned how to 
manage just a budget and marketing spend and all of those things that people might think are dull but actually to be a good founder you've got to have all the you know the craziness around you but if you can have a grounding in some form of business as well I think it does really help. That's really really interesting because I, I do see that a lot of first-time founders now they feel the burden of what they see as the extracurricular parts of, of being a founder i.e reporting you know all the things that actually keep you really on track keep transparency the core of what you're doing build great relationships with shareholders actually those are the sorts of skills you learn in corporates right getting buy-in from every stakeholder and it's actually it, it, it's it's a really interesting one i've never i've actually never thought about it that way and i actually really enjoy that side of being a founder so um like i'm awful at maths you say you're severely dyslexic like i genuinely think i have like maths dyslexia yep. which is like dyscalculia yep. like i i literally can't add up past like my fingers uh, like I just freak out with numbers so I always shied away from that but actually obviously I can use Excel very well so to counteract that so I learned that at L'Oreal to like manage big budgets and use Excel brilliantly so then when you bring that into like the founder side of things I actually now really enjoy sitting down with the financial model mm -hmm. and actually forecasting and plugging in numbers and being realistic and not getting carried away and you can keep that to yourself as well and just just playing with the numbers and you know I really enjoy with Rory our, our co-founder at Trumpet putting together our investor update I just find all of that actually the sort of that is the vision and strategy like vision and strategy isn't just coming up with great ideas the vision and strategy is actually what grounds the business mm. and I actually just really enjoy putting all of that together because it just makes me sort of recalibrate myself yeah and it's, it's a really good point because one of the and I'm sure this you know attributes to a lot of the success that you've had is speaking to so many angel investors and even if just anecdotally rather than doing hardcore analysis on this the success rate of companies who are good at reporting who are on top of these things it's just immaculate it's just amazing compared to you know your more traditional mad scientist entrepreneur who doesn't care about those things like you really see a difference in the success rate 100 and it pains me with my investments mm -hmm. if they don't send a monthly update yeah. uh, for me there's no excuse mm -hmm. and it's not just to satiate the investors it's actually because it, it just gives you that hour yeah. it doesn't have to be a thesis yeah. but it just gives you that hour just to actually look at the numbers think about the numbers what's going well what's not but then also asking for things exactly so i say like you've got investors around you no i'm not thinking about your business 24 7 but that email will make me trigger and be like oh actually yeah i, I can intro to them them and yeah. them um so for me there's no excuse yeah it's just bad practice as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. I don't know about you because I was also very good at investor reporting the first time round. And it was only when I started investing in other founders where I realized, oh, actually not everyone is as good at that. You learn the hard way when you write a 75K check and get no transparency into what's going on, right? Um, so that's a really, really interesting one. But another key point you make there is, you know, no early stage investor expects a founder to have it figured out. No. I want the transparency because I want to help, yeah. especially if I've invested, yeah. right? I want to be able to help. So I think it's, uh, I've heard you speak about that, about that a lot before and I think it's um, you know, great that you're spreading that message because ultimately, you know, especially with the economic downturn that we have right now, 
founders have got to pull every string they can, every lever they have access to, to try and get additional help, introductions, resources, whatever it might be. So it's, I think, now more important than ever. And, and you know, once, whether it's a VC or an angel, once they've invested, they can't take their money back. So you might no, as well just be open. Might want. Yeah, exactly. So you might as well be open and just be like, well, actually, we're really struggling on these two areas. Can we have like a session or does anyone have any advice or can intro to me anyone? So there's no point like pulling the wool over investors' eyes and then just carrying on. Like once you've taken their money, they're there to make it a success with you. So it just blows my mind that people just don't use that network that they've already got in their business more. Now, especially in a time where inevitably there's going to be down rounds, there's going to be people coming back to internal investors to, to re-up as it were you know, not paying your investors, uh, maybe respect's the wrong word, but not taking them on the journey with you. Yeah. You know, and then knocking on the door saying, I know you haven't heard from me in six months, but we need cash, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I just don't understand it. And I understand that founders are really busy and they might see that like an investor update is a chore, but, um, you know, I've always said to the ones I invest in, if you want me to show you like a really light investor update, you know, for me, it's just like your top line figures, and then you can literally just do what's going well, what's not going well, what's in the shit, mm -hmm. a few bullet points on each. Like if that's all you need to send and an ask, I'm like, put an ask at the top of your email because if they don't read your email and they'll read the ask at least. Mm -hmm. So just ask, you know, what you want. Um, and we do that with Trumpet and every ask we get replies and I just, yeah, I just don't know why people say that. Yeah, so we can, we will end up doing this whole episode on angel investing. So <laughs> yeah. I, want to, I want to go back to a point you made really right at the start. Yeah. And again, it's, a, it's another one which I see lots of entrepreneurs that I speak to is you know, coming from a family of entrepreneurs. For some people, it's a real turnoff. Like for myself, my dad was an entrepreneur and um, varied success. You know, he lost everything when I was seven. We had a couple of years. My mum got ill. We had a couple of years where we had no income whatsoever. And I was certain I wouldn't be an entrepreneur because seeing that pain, I didn't want to do that. And what it put my family through and everything else, but inevitably got drawn to it. Did you ever have the, you know, the, the, with the pain, the hard work, the stress, all that side of it. Did you ever have any of those concerns going into to becoming a founder? I think we actually went into Design My Night quite blind. So we were uh, early mid-twenties, mid-twenties. Um, there wasn't all the noise around entrepreneurship mm -hmm. sort of back then, it was a while back now. Um, and you know, on LinkedIn and all that, there was just n nothing really. So sort of taking a leap into the dark apart from just seeing what my dad was doing. Um, and although it was there for me, I, like at uni, so Andrew, who's my uh, co-founder in Design My Night, is like my best mate from uni, he always wanted to do his own thing. So at uni, he, we would always talk about him doing his own thing. Um, and in my mind, I was like, oh no, I could see myself just being at a corporate and working my way up and being like a country manager or something. So it was in me, but I never had that burning desire to do it. And it was actually, when we ideated on Design My Night, we happened to be incredibly drunk that night as well in New York. Um, nice. I think it was a great origin story. It, it, it was a good origin. And I actually took him back to that restaurant for his stag do. Nice. Um, Which restaurant was it? Benny's Burritos in Greenwich Village. Okay. They do the strongest margarita. Like, honestly, we, we fell off our chair. Like, 
we were just wasted. We were like, they must have had something else in. Um, well, whatever they put in it, those drinks, it, it, it worked. worked. Yeah. It worked. And then I think we just got the buzz. So like, you know, when you come up with the idea, and then like the next day we were like googling stuff to do in London and saw like Time Out, and then we we're like, oh, there's not actually that much. Maybe we can roll with it. And then I, I think I just got swept away with it. Um, if I would have known how hard it was going to be. I don't know if I would have actually, Interesting. not knowing the output, because I'm super pleased how it all went, but if I just would have known how hard it was going to be, maybe I wouldn't have gone into it so willingly. That's a really great point, and it's one of the things which I think, you talk about the LinkedIn entrepreneurial culture, and, and now being a founder is you know as much an identity, as much a, a trend as anything. Yeah. And I think it's a, a really important point to talk about is, when you can't see the outcome, yeah. and very few of us do get the outcome, yeah. right? How tough that slog is, and it, it shouldn't be for everyone. It shouldn't be glamorized, and people shouldn't feel the pressure that they have to go through that journey because it is brutal. Yeah, and it, yeah, that's what I say to people. Like, it's definitely not for everyone, um, and it's incredibly hard work. It, I, I also say like the people around you have to be ready for what so loved ones family friends have to understand the journey you're about to go on as well it's you know all consuming and you know you can slag off hustle porn and all of that stuff but that's the reality it's the reality like, if you want to grow a business the at least the first three years you have to literally put everything in and you are going to be working evenings and you are going to be weekends and you're going to be on holiday and you won't be able to switch off and for me actually they make the great founders mm -hmm. like you have to i think be addicted to it but also because you enjoy it yes so like i it, it's almost like a, a sadomasochistic thing absolutely you sort of love it and hate it at the same time um and it is a bit of an addiction which is you know why we're going again um but it's, it's definitely not for everyone. I'm so glad you said that. I've said founders are masochists so many times, but you're, you are right. And it, you know, I don't want to go back to investor reporting, but again, it's, you know, with founders who are obsessed with their business, they love doing that monthly, like looking into everything. So I, I totally see that. Um, so tell me, okay, so you're, you're, you've left L'Oreal, yeah. you're starting to build Design My Night. How quickly did you realize you guys were into something which was gonna go scale, exit? Was it, you know, pretty clear sailing? Must have been lots of bumps on, on, on the journey. Yeah, it was slow. So again, so yeah, back back then, angel investing and all of that wasn't as big a thing. We weren't connected at all, so didn't really know about VCs. Um, so it was it was just slow. We had like interns. Um, so it was a really slow, probably like year and a half, where we saw traction in the B two C side and people that were using Design My Night. Uh, really enjoyed it um, and there was some viral loops going on about people talking about Design My Night um, but it by no means did that um, and actually not until we did the software uh, when we half pivoted because we kept obviously the B2C side into software did the business take off. If we, if we wouldn't have pivoted Design My Night would have died. So um, it's really it's, it's a great model though. When I look at like Open Table and, and they did something similar, right? Yeah. They realized it didn't work immediately as a marketplace until they had the critical mass. They built SaaS enablement for you know restaurants to do table bookings, right? I think it's a really amazing way of doing it. And the fact that you guys did it basically bootstrapped is you know insane. So huge order. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, look, and I think doing it bootstrapped. Um, enables you or forces you to just focus on the like the revenue levers 
So like everything we spent, everyone we hired, we were really like laser focused on, is this gonna deliver mm -hmm. revenue and quickly? You didn't really have time to play the long, long game mm -hmm. and be like, oh, well, if we do, if we spend, you know, half a million on marketing, we'll see the results in like eight months or something. Like we had to make sure that every person we hired was gonna bring value to the business. And I think that just gave the whole company like incredible laser focus, mm -hmm. amazing output. Um, because we didn't have any slackers. Uh, everyone was just like fired up to make Design My Night work. Very cool, very, very cool. So it takes me to a, a train of thought around you as an angel investor, because obviously you bootstrapped a company um, to an amazing result. You've invested in a ton of companies. Do you ever see a company and just sort of think, you guys could bootstrap this? You know, there's there's no need, or is it more an opportunistic? You could, but I want to get I want to get in. Like, how how do you see it now? Because I think when you've come from that that scarcity of cash causing laser focus and seeing how good an outcome that can bring, yeah. Now, obviously, especially in 2021, when you've got just you know the most ludicrous amounts of money flying around, like how how do you feel about that, and how how does that impact the way you invest? I think well, Ayla, there's no right and no wrong. So I say that to all founders, like people that admire what we do. So bootstrapping doesn't mean that's the right way to do it necessarily for your business. And Trumpet, we, we've raised a VC round pre-product, pre-revenue. So totally different model to design because that was right for Trumpet. Um, I would never, I, and whenever I invest or, or meet the founders, I, I take my investor hat off as well. So I always try and give the founder advice first if I, if, if I think that will benefit them versus me as an investor. Um, sometimes I'll say a, a big dilemma I get founders come to me is they aren't really developed enough but in their mind they want to raise like a million rounds. Yeah. So what I say to tons of founders is well why don't you do 150k at a reasonable valuation rather than having a thousand meetings to get this valuation you're not gonna get. And then let's just start to build the business with 150K, let's get some traction, let's get some revenue. And that, you know, everyone's so focused on like the YC formula and it's like, okay, well, I've got to do my pre-seed, my seed, my series A, like it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. So just take a bit of cash um, whether that's from angels, well, it will be from angels, and then just start to grow the business, and then we can see where we are. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like bootstrapped plus. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I promote a lot to founders until yeah. they're ready to then raise a, a, a bigger round, a, a more sensible valuation, which is what people are going to have to do for the next couple of years anyway, because you're not going to get your stupid valuations. And I think it's the right, I think it's actually the right way, especially in the UK. Yeah. We're not geared up for the same funding environment in the US. I was just out in the US for two months. The amount of VCs who are just, they won't invest unless a founding team retains 75% plus going into Series A. Whereas, you know, in the UK, that's just not the reality for most businesses who get to venture backstage. You know, it happens, but it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not very, very um, often that it does happen. It's that, I call it, you know, always on fundraising. It's, you know, smaller tickets, especially with so many amazing uh, instruments, like advanced subscription agreements. Like, it's so easy to do now. SPV um, syndication tools, which are out there. Like, it, founders have got so much more now than you did in 2020, I, I did in 2013, that there is really no reason to be pursuing these mega rounds where 
for 99% of people, you're going to be spending your whole time fundraising and just not justifying that valve yeah. and, and raising that load of capital. I think that's a great point. The, to the tools that are available now, um, you almost just need like one or two evangelists. Like there's, there's actually a company in America, which I won't go into because I'm going to talk about the funding, which I'm an investor in and I adore and they're doing amazingly. And he was doing like a little bridge round. And I actually said to him, can I do an SPV? Yeah and let me fundraise for you. And you, you know, I take my cut from the investors, not you. Um, and I just, cause I just totally believe in the business. Mm -hmm. I just did an SPV and like raised like 300 grand. He didn't have to do anything. Um, cause I was the evangelist mm -hmm. for him. And because I believe in it so much, I think I'll get my payback for that when he does amazingly. So but yeah, there's so many vehicles you just need. Yeah, whether it's a mentor or an angel that don't don't go to them for money straight away, go to them for advice and like build up a relationship. And if you can get a couple of people just believing in your business, as you say, there's so many vehicles now to raise money quicker and smaller and just keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Exactly that. Exactly that. So now that we're in this economic crisis, downturn, whatever you want to call it, is that changing the way that you view risk? For your investments and for your own company? That's a good question. So, so, so when I, so, so it's obviously about risk. So when I exited Design My Night, the first thing I did was went to a, an, an independent financial advisor and I said to her, A, I want to map out my financial future with you. So I want to invest in X, Y, Z, different asset classes. Um, can we map it out? Let's see what's sensible, what's not. The first thing they do, obviously, as an IFA is they give you a risk assessment. Um, and I think I was like 9.5 out of 10. So she was like, I can tell you're a founder. You're, you, know, you, you thrive off risk. Um, and I think that 9.5 was also like, you accept if things go wrong because you get the thrill of the risk. Mm -hmm. So like if. I mean, if I lost everything, I'd be crushed. But if I lose an investment or something, I can sort of just wipe it off because that was the high risk that I, I went for. And then I reached out to her probably like, what was it, probably like a few months ago. I said, oh, can we just remap stuff? Uh, she said, yeah. She's like, I'm going to give you the risk thing again. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had come down to, I think, 6.8. Right, OK, sign of the times. So she was like, very interesting. Yeah. I was like, we had like a psychiatry session with her. Um, she was like, okay, wow. She was like, that's still moderate to high yeah. in most people. Like some people come out as like three. Um, but she said, okay, why? Like, why is you? And I was just like, well, look, I have lost stuff yeah. and the stock market's crashed and investments haven't worked. Into crypto at all? I did a bit of crypto, but not big, okay. luckily, um, which I'm just sort of ignoring for 10 years anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of my sort of assets, let's say, are hugely down at the moment and not something I'm freaking out about, but you know, you've just got to ride out for a few years. So I think maybe when you get burnt on a mass scale and you just hear doom and gloom around you, um, maybe that lowers your risk profile. Um, but also the angels have cycles of investing as well. Absolutely. Like, unless you're super wealthy yeah. and you've just got this pot of money you can keep pushing out. You know, I'm now 58 investments, so I'm at a point now where I'm like, okay, let's just stop mm -hmm. and let's see if any win mm -hmm. before we just keep adding to it. Yeah. Um, so I'm also sort of a bit of a end yeah. of my current cycle yeah. and just going to uh, sit 
and just see probably for the next at least I think six months yeah. at least and just see how all of my investments sort of pan out. It's a, re it's a really really good point and actually goes back to what we're talking about with a lot of these syndication tools. One of the things that I've seen and, and something that I've been doing recently as well is because you know the as much as a founder wants to tell you it's a three to five year exit time horizon for the most part is much longer than that. So, because of the syndication tools that are available, I'm finding a lot more angels in my network, a lot more angels that I know, are actually investing at a later stage because they're able to because they're doing it through a syndicate and, and you know through a nominee structure to obviously increase the time horizon for an exit event. And I actually think that's also one of the risks for A-stage founders right now is the accessibility of later stage rounds, especially when you've got tier one VCs sitting on their hands a bit more and that deal flow trickling down to wider availability. I, I think that could be a really tricky thing for, for founders, but it's a good, for, a good thing for investors if I'm able to invest in a series A, a series B, and, and you know get closer to the start of a new cycle. So yeah. it does catch up, but it's an interesting trend I'm seeing. I feel, yeah, I have this discussion actually, I was having it the other day with another investor. Syndicates are great, and I'm in some awesome syndicates, and I see some great deals, and yeah, a syndicate's great because you can put in like a, a three, four, five grand check. Um, but my personal take on when I invest in a syndicate is because I'm putting in such a small amount, I want that to be 100x. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just pointless. For, for me, and this, this sounds very, uh, what's the word, um, you know, privileged for me to be able to say, but for me to put in two grand mm -hmm. and all the risk that still comes with that, mm -hmm. you know, most will fail, and just to get a 10x return off yeah. that, it doesn't feel like a risk worth taking. Interesting. So if I'm looking at a syndicate and it's later stage and it's at like a 20 mil valuation yeah. and it's doing well, yeah. in my head I'm like, can this be a unicorn? Yeah. And if it can't be a unicorn, it's, it's just not worth it. And I might regret it or I might see it doing well, but still, even if I see it doing well, that two grand might turn into 20 grand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're like, well, actually, that amount of risk that you put in a startup that it's not yours, I could probably make that two grand turn into 20 grand mm -hmm. somewhere else where I'm in control of. So actually, I still, when I invest syndicates, still like really early stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's get in sub five. Mm -hmm. And then actually, if we turn this into like 100 million rather than a unicorn, then we'll get serious returns. So that's fascinating. So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So you do look at investing businesses which may not have unicorn potential and therefore are you coaching those founders? Because this is something I found previously. I invested, I just invested in something the other day. R love the founder. It's, um, it's a marketplace helping people shop sustainably called Greener. Really love the guy, like met loads of times. He's ex-Greenpeace, you know, if there's anyone who will live, fight and die to try and solve this problem, it's gonna be this guy, right? He's, he's awesome. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily gonna be a unicorn, yeah. but I am very, very, you know, conscious of that and I've done that for, for different reasons but and it's not the first time I've done that but one of the things I find quite difficult um, advising those founders on is understanding that they can't they need to look at different routes of funding or different routes of scaling than going for venture capital because if you're not going for three billion you're just barking up the wrong tree so do you how, does that influence the way that you invest well and do you have those conversations with your founders guiding them that way too yeah definitely like the the first thing i normally say to founders that I'm, I'm close to that i've invested in once they've got the cash in the bank i'm like okay forget all the bs you've been telling us and all that to raise the money like what does a good outcome look like for you like is it five million pounds in your bank account 
and financial freedom or whatever. Well, if that is yes, then actually you only need to sell for 40 million, whatever. Like, so, and then as an investor, if I've come in at a 2 million valuation, actually you selling at 40 million is a very yeah, nice thing because I've put in a bigger check because it's not mm -hmm. a syndicate. So I'm like, well, you know, if we can get 20x of this as an investor, very happy. You've got 5 million quid in your back pocket. You'll be very happy. So I think that's so important because it just shapes the journey that you go on. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the first conversations yeah. I will have. And yeah, I'm if I'm backing early stage, I'm definitely not backing that they'll become a unicorn, 100% yeah. not. And this is why I think it's so great having ex-operators as investors, because ultimately know what it's like, know that smaller exits are attainable, which can be like totally life-changing, yeah. versus, and I think in the UK, it's something like 90 plus percent of VCs have never operated in a VC, and they don't have that way of thinking about it. And that's why I think it's so awesome in what you do in terms of you know, using that experience to actually say, well, look, there are and things like microacquire now, making yeah. it even more achievable. So I think it's, it's such an exciting time to be a founder. There's so many great options out there. And if the positive outcome of, of the you know, downturn right now in investing is that people realize it doesn't need to be what LinkedIn told you it should be two years ago, yeah. that's actually not a bad thing. Yeah, like it's back to like the bones. It's like build a business. If you want, you don't have to become a famous ego-driven founder. You don't have to be in TechCrunch. You don't have to be a unicorn, but you can have an awesome journey. You can have a totally life-changing sum of money for you and your family selling for 50 million quid or even 30 million quid like if you keep enough equity so yeah i think i i advise that to a lot of my founders um, and don't forget as an angel investor you're probably looking at secondaries further and further down the line because you're going to get screwed if it if it gets ten, you know five which is something v which more angels need to realize yeah, as five well. vcs later yeah. and it's on the path to unicorn ironically the angel who backed them right at the start will get screwed over so actually when they start hitting like 100 mil plus valuations as an angel you should be thinking oh okay maybe i'll i'll say thanks Let, let's take a discount and go yeah, yeah. interesting okay so nick i've got a few questions for you which i'd, I'd love to ask so one is is there any specific risk that you've taken that stands out to you as, you know, that was a huge risk and, and what was the outcome of that? Oh, I think jumping ship from corporate, which sort of none of my friends or family could understand. They're like, what are you doing? Um, so that was a big risk, but it worked out well. Um, I think our pivot to software was a huge risk. So we had to totally change our strategy. Uh, we had to unfortunately get rid of uh, a lot of the team because it was a very content-led team and then we had to pivot to like more devs and customer success and become a SaaS business so that was a huge risk um, which paid off luckily um, we did one that didn't pay off which was we tried to do build a uh, build a subset called design my night deals when okay. Groupon was getting big right. and we were still pretty early stage pre-software and we were like, well, let's build a Groupon for going out, essentially. So we'll do a deal with a bar that you get a four quid cocktail instead of 12 quid. And if we sell 100 of those, that activates the deal. And mm -hmm. um, we spent a lot of our money on that. Uh, we, we, for some stupid reason, we built that software as well. Um, and it just didn't work because we weren't big enough. So obviously Groupon have like millions on their mailing list we were still very small um, so it just didn't take off um, so that was a huge risk 
financially and a pivot of the business that didn't work. But I think what we did well was we just cut it quickly. Mm -hmm. We were like, this is not going to work. Okay, the money's gone, whatever, let's move on and get going again. So I think that's quite important. If you take big risks and they fail, know when it's failing and readjust very quickly. That's really, really great advice. And I think it's also something that we're seeing in the market right now. It's the importance of monetization at an early stage because it does give you the time to take those risks and you still need to act quickly but it does allow if your bread and butter is working it allows you to be a bit more exploratory so that, that's uh that's, i actually had no idea about the uh, zamanite deals most people didn't yeah. <laughs> it was so quick and brief uh, an early stage that yeah it came and went pretty quickly fantastic okay so my next question for you is is there anything that stands out to you which you wish you'd done differently in this journey I think, I think for us, the, the biggest mistake that yeah, we're not doing with Trumpet that we've learned from um, was micromanaging the business, not necessarily the people, um, but Andrew and I were so ingrained in everything. And Design My Night grew, you know, we had the B2C arm, we then built three bits of SaaS. We had three SaaS products and the big B2C arm, um, a team for each different part of that as well. And we were just, we were product managers, we were working with dev, we were looking at customer support tickets, we were working with our, our finance girl to keep on top of all the finance. Like we were just in everything. And it just wasn't a healthy way to operate, probably for our team and for us. And when Access bought us, that was one of the first things they said was, we need to detangle you from this business. Like we've got, we've got a two year earn out, but you need to start like lifting everyone else up, giving them responsibility and trusting them. And we had such an awesome team um, and we did trust them. Yeah, I think we just, cause it was our first one. We were just so in everything and you know, trumpet. We're, we're we're taking a very different tact. That we're just hiring like rock stars to to get on with it. That like I was talking to you before about hiring someone in marketing and just letting them just get on with it and just checking in with us, but us not checking in on them all the time. So we've learned from that, and I think that would be a lot more freeing as well as founders. It's more incredible advice. It's uh, never easy to let go, but you've got to, right? Yeah. And it's one of the things you learn when you're going through that integration after the exit it's like it, you're like wow i didn't actually realize how entrenched i was right sometimes it's just that and it can work without us i'm yeah. probably better <laughs> yeah which is nice and do, do, you, do you find that's actually going to help you have more balance maybe yeah, this time around definitely definitely it just gives you a bit more clarity it makes you less anxious you know i, I every time i was out and obviously design my night it was a 24 7 business if our booking software went down during dinner service we were screwed so we had, I had alarms on for different bits of the software that would go down. So if my phone vibrated and I was at dinner with mates, I'd be like, shit, Collins is down. But it was just like my mum phoning me. But yeah. I just had this constant anxiety <laughs> that every time my phone vibrated, it was bad news. Um, so it's just not healthy. And that's why you've got a dev team and that's why you've got an on-call team. It doesn't have to be the founder the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. That founder anxiety is very real. <laughs> yeah. The very first two years, anytime someone calls you unexpectedly, everything's What's over. Yeah, it's all burned it? down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, nice. And out of interest, just you know, side side tangent here. So, yeah, you, know, you talk about those sacrifices. You talk about 
being always on for so long. I mean, what what impact did that have on people around you? Because I, I, with Real Sport, I went from 20 close mates to three, who are now my three best mates, don't get me wrong, but similar sort of, you know, straight out, straight, you know, out of corporate, you've got such a social life, everything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky, like I've got an awesome group of mates, like still both from school and uni. So um, I think eventually they just got excited by like the journey we're going on. Des design my night helps. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very fun, from the outside, it's a very fun business. So like we were getting messages all the time, like where can I go out? Can you book us into here? So we sort of became like an auxiliary for, for friends as well. Um, so they were all very understanding and I was lucky to keep, keep them. Um, but yeah, I, you know, loved ones, partners, family. I'm very close to my family, but you know, they just had to realise that actually this had to be my priority for a certain certain time. Um, and I was lucky. I think everyone did understand, but yeah, it, it was more of a, a self mental thing because I was just just like locked in your own sort of design my night prison. And that's actually one of my biggest regrets looking back is I sort of missed. I missed my mid-twenties to early thirties. Uh, and again, we were discussing, like, I go to Ibiza now once a year, and that's to recap I'm reliving those 20s, yeah. my, my <laughs> youth. And I'm like, oh, like, and I, I, I love it. And at the same time, I, I feel a bit sad sometimes because I'm like, I, sh I should have been doing that in my twenties. Um, so I'm sort of trying to make up for it now, but not being like a creepy old person yeah. in, in a class. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating because I literally had Dan Bowyer on the last podcast before, and he was talking about how you know, he lived his whole 20s with just the experiences and wished he'd started earlier, right? Okay. So grass is always green, isn't <laughs> That's it? That's true, that is true, that is true. So what are you proudest of in your journey so far? I think it was um, when, this is genuine, when we exited, most of the team had options. And those meetings, like we obviously said, you couldn't tell the team until like the day before it was actually happening. Um, so we told the team, everyone's very excited, a bit worried about what's coming next, but we dealt with that. But then the next day we pulled everyone who had chairs into a meeting room one-on-one. -on -one, and we were literally just like, remember those things I talked about five years ago? Well, tomorrow you're gonna have 250 grand in your bank account. And like people were just like crying, hugging. I, they, even when we said we exited, I just don't think they realized. And a lot of people didn't realize what the options were. And that was just, it was just an outpouring of emotion. Cause it was just like from us to them, like thank you so much for trusting us. And a lot of our team stayed for a lot of the journey. We were very lucky. Um, so just those meetings and Andrew and I still talk about it. Like that day when we just sat everyone down and even someone that got like, 15 grand just to get 15 grand cash Absolutely. for doing a job they enjoy were just like amazing. So I think that was like a real landmark moment when we exited more than like the money landing in our account. I just, we awesome. just really enjoyed that. Love that. Love that. Okay. What does it take to be successful? Yeah. Contrary to what's trendy, I would say like, you have to be like single-minded, borderline obsessed with your business. Um, I can only talk about success in business. Um, I think you, you have to you have to be ready to give everything that you've got and know that it will probably be for at least three years. Um, and 
it's fine for some people just not to be cut out to do that. But I think it's unrealistic if you go into a startup without knowing how hard it's going to be and believe all the other more like trendy advice on, you know, stop at five and you know, have some you time because it's just not the reality. Um, so one of the big bits of advice that I give, and I think only certain people can do this though, is to keep yourself on an even keel. So I find myself emotionally, I never got too high at Design My Night. Um, and at the same time, I never got too low. So, and, and we have plenty of lows, but Andrew and I were very good at like, okay, that's happened, let's just move on. Like, okay, we'll dwell on it tonight and then tomorrow it's gone. The same when we had success, uh, we were like, great, tick, high five, what's next? So we, we kept ourselves doing that rather than that. And I think if you can take out that emotional roller coaster of, from your journey, that will sort of stabilize you a lot more. Very hard to do, but if you can somehow find that center and just try and stick to that line as much as possible and, and pull yourself back if you do either or either, that's a great trait to be able to do. That's, it's an amazing answer, first of all, and so great to hear. And it's one of the things I always, um, fascinated by is how similar founders are to actors, comedians, professional athletes in that it's that all-in mentality, dealing with the ups and downs. And when, when I was running Real Sport, we were working with Houston Rockets and I was talking to one of the, the players at the time. And their season's 82 games long. So he was saying, like, the way they keep their mentality is, even when you have a big win, yeah. it's like, Next game's around the corner. Big loss, next game's around the corner. So it's, it's fascinating how many similarities there are because I think it's that sacrifice, being all in, managing your own mentality, keeping yourself in that even keel. So yeah, super interesting to hear from you. Nick, my last question for you is, you sitting here, if yourself as a 15-year-old man, teenager, 15-year-old teenager, man, boy, I don't know, walks in, what are you telling him? I think on a more personal level, uh, so I came out really late, uh, which is probably the biggest regret in my life. Um, so I would tell the younger me just, you're great, who you are, just be who you are, be who you want to be, and your friends and family will love you for that. Um, so yeah, without getting too deep, I think, that's like the one main regret I've got. And again, I feel like I missed out part of my life, especially at uni, like just not, whether it was coming to terms with it or having the courage, um, I would just, yeah, tell myself that it's, it's fine. It's, you should just do it and it'll be fine. And that, I, I try and help a lot of sort of LGBT plus founders now. That's like a passion of mine um, because again, quite underrepresented. It's not like a visual underrepresentation. So it's not often talked about, you know, obviously you've got um, founders of color and female founders, all extremely important, of course. Um, but, you know, there's lots of people in that community as well that don't feel comfortable to be who they are because they don't think they'll get investment um or even to their team um so i'm trying to be a bit of a voice now for, for that community as well in in the founder world nick that's awesome thank you so much for sharing thanks so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me